1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that, or I guess today we say turn on your Bibles and go to that passage. Uh, we also have Bibles in the back uh, for people who, who may not have one. But it says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The Bannister effect. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it before, but prior to 1954, no one had ever run a mile in less than four minutes. In fact, scientists have said that the human body was not capable of such a feat, that it was impossible. Roger Bannister disagreed. He began to train to do just that. He did not follow the conventional training wisdom of his day, and he did not look for the uh, silver bullet or microwave his way to success. He put his shoulder down and worked hard. He believed it could be done and that he could do it. And he was the first man to break the four-minute mile on a track in England. A truly astounding feat. But, but what was even more remarkable is what happened next. Within 12 months, 300 other people around the world broke the four-minute mile too. They thought, well, if, if Roger can do it, so can I. Today, this is called the Bannister Effect. That is, uh, that's what it's called when someone breaks through what was previously thought to be impossible and others are inspired by their success and follow through into their new into new possibility. What was the key to success for, for Roger and those that followed? It was their mindset, right? Their belief. They believed that the impossible was actually possible. And then they behaved in a manner consistent with that belief. So what you believe determines how you behave, right? The resurrection is an actual thing that has happened and will happen. And for us as Christians, it is a source of hope, power, and motivation. These are the three points that I want to express today. And as we continue through 1 Corinthians 15, we should remember that Paul addresses a big problem. But remember, what you believe determines what you, how you behave. And, and in this, this chapter, chapter 15, Paul doesn't begin by calling out the problem. Uh, we don't find out what the issue is until uh, verse 12. You know, some people in the Corinthian church basically said resurrection cannot happen. Now, they weren't denying that Christ raised from the dead, but they were believing that those who have died in Christ cannot be resurrected. They believe that the resurrection cannot happen and they believe that it will not happen. Now, this is a problem because Paul knows what we believe about the resurrection and what they believed about the resurrection will impact their actions as Christians. Likewise, it is with us today. And what we believe will impact how we behave. 
And when we believe rightly, we will get to experience the fullness of what the Lord has for us. Paul is dealing with this belief, presenting some practical implications for the resurrection. So before Paul lays out the problem in verse 12, he begins in verse 1 with the gospel. He starts off by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now the gospel is foundational to Christians. The good news that, that Jesus Christ, um, the only begotten Son of, of God, he died for our sins, you know, he was buried and resurrected, and he was seen by many witnesses, right? This is foundational uh, to us as Christians. We should never move really beyond the gospel. This good news is something we must never forget. When times get hard, we should remember the gospel. When you feel uncertain about uh, the future, remember the gospel. We should go back to the gospel over and over again. The good news, this good news will just nourish our souls and encourage our hearts forever endeavor. So verses 1 through 11, Paul lays this foundation. Uh, then we get to verse 12, which is the problem, denying the resurrection. It's summarized in the verse 12. It says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then he goes on to verses 13 and 19. And what Paul does, he takes us on some sort of a, like a thought experiment of sorts, right? So he says, like, what if what you say is true? You know, let's say there is no resurrection of the dead. What, what would that mean for us? And he goes on to say, well, the conclusion from that would mean that, first of all, Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our sins aren't forgiven. We're still in our sins. And if our, friends are not, as our, if our sins are not forgiven, if that's the case, uh, then our faith is worthless. Um, and, um, and we, of all people, should be pitied the most. So if Christ didn't rise, then any person who has put their faith in Christ and has died is still dead. They're lost forever and never to be seen again. So he kind of goes through this experiment, this, this thought process. And then in verse 20, he, he breaks through from that thought experiment. And he, he proclaims, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he has, and he goes on to give us this macro view of God's plan. Christ did rise. He did destroy every rule, every authority, and every power. He did overcome death, and every person who puts their faith in him will rise and spend eternity in glory with him forever and ever. That is the plan of God. It may seem like death is still winning, but it ain't, right? It's only temporary. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the day is coming in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In sickness, it will be no more. In sadness, will be no more. In death, will be no more. That day is coming, and we're already, uh, we're in the already but not yet, right? Uh, death is already defeated, and we're still waiting on the final day when we will experience it no more. Everything in the cosmos is moving towards that day, and nothing will thwart the plan of God, and we are waiting for that day. Now, as we move to verse 29, uh, we see Paul continues with the thought, if there is no resurrection from the dead, what then? And Paul begins to place some real practical implications of believing in the resurrection before the Corinthians and us. So today, we'll look at some of those implications and really look at how we as Christians are to live in light of the resurrection. The resurrection is, hap is happening, and it provides hope, power, and motivation for those who believe. The resurrection is our hope, the resurrection is our power, and the resurrection is our motivation. The resurrection is our hope. 
So Paul opens in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, now this passage opens with a seemingly strange thing going on, right? Baptism on behalf of the dead. You're probably wondering what in the world was happening here. So uh, let me start by saying, I don't know, right? <laughs> and it's not because I didn't prepare. I don't know because no one really knows, right? So, so, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't know because uh, because no one really knows. And we can assume that the Corinthians knew what Paul meant uh, because he had no need to explain it, right? He kind of just like dropped it in there, kind of like obviously you guys know that that baptism on behalf of the dead thing that's going on, right? I want to address that. So that's what he's kind of talking about. So although I can't tell you exactly what Paul meant, I can offer you uh, one thing it doesn't mean and a couple things that it, it may mean as we look at Paul's point for discussing it in the first place. So first, what it is not saying, right? What it is not saying. It is not saying that we, living saints, can be baptized in proxy for or vicariously for people who have died so that they can go to heaven. Right? This is what the Mormons teach from this verse, right? And it is wrong because it is contrary to the, the majority and explicit teaching of the Bible. This is the only place in the Bible where you have a reference to baptizing for the dead. So, so here's something about the Bible. The Bible is inspired, right? Meaning that it is the word of God. The Bible is inerrant, meaning that it is without error or fault uh, in all of its teachings. And the Bible is infallible, meaning that it's wholly trustworthy and wholly sufficient for life and salvation. It will not fail us. The Bible is also, in some instances, a, a, a little unclear to us, right? So whenever we come to a verse that, that may be obscure or, or unclear, it will be wise for us not to build, it, build an entire doctrine around that one verse that, that, con that seemingly contradicts other verses or the majority of other, other verses in, in, in Scripture. So Mormon baptism... Uh, for the dead is a proxy administration for baptism for a deceased person who didn't hear the Mormon gospel uh, while they were alive. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith, he instituted this practice in 1840 in response to concern among some of his followers uh, for, for, for forebears who died unbaptized, right? They had some concerns that, hey, some people died unbaptized. What do we do about that? He had to have a solution. So here it is, right? Um, today, these baptisms are also performed as an act of love for unrelated persons selected from a, a geno genealogical uh, records from Mormon records, from their archives. So according to Mormon teaching, the practice affords the dead the opportunity to pursue salvation through a system of works righteousness. Mormons explicitly teach salvation by good works. So baptism for the dead is part of that system. So with this verse, Paul is not saying that we can be baptized for dead people so they can go to heaven. Here's why. So, so number one, the Bible teaches that by grace you have been saved, right, uh, by, through faith and, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not works. Two, the Bible teaches that baptism doesn't save us, right? Baptism is a rite or, or an ordinance. There are two ordinances of the church. It's baptism, uh, and, and one is baptism and the other is communion. So, and they are symbols. They don't have an ability to save us, right? Communion cannot save you and baptism cannot save you. It is an outward showing of an inward reality uh, or work. So we're saved by grace and baptism 
can't save us, let alone someone else for whom you would be baptized. So the Mormon practice is really anti-gospel. The Gospels and Acts declare that Jesus' post-resurrection teaching focused on his kingdom. The Old Testament witnesses, uh, witnesses to him and the change to make global and the charge to make global disciples. If the Corinthians practice what Mormons do, Paul couldn't have tolerated it, right? He, since it's a contradiction to the gospel. So, so, so he, he would have explicitly went, been more like, hey, do not do this, right? So, so what, what is Paul saying? Well, we, we can't be quite sure, but, but some feel that Paul is basically saying that they are baptized in the place of those who, who are dead in the sense that a believer lived a Christian life died in the Lord, and the unbeliever saw them and was influenced by them, right? So, so a believer saw someone living a Christian life, saw them what they did and how they lived for the gospel, and when they died, that, in effect, caused them to be baptized. So some people kind of take that, that, that as a, a view, right? Now, that, that's a possible interpretation because it's interesting that when we see when Stephen was stoned in Acts, Saul was there witnessing it, right? It seems that Stephen's death had an impact on Saul's life. Uh, so Stephen died and went to heaven, but the Lord convicted Saul because of Stephen's life, and Saul believed Jesus. He was baptized and was brought into the church. You might say, in a sense, that, that Saul was baptized for the dead because of Stephen's life and the way it impacted Saul. But there's a, another view, and, and one that, that some people, that I would say more people probably lean towards, uh, but they, they can't be dogmatic about it. And it's that the church at Corinth, was, it was full of all kinds of foolish practices, that they were doing all kinds of like unbiblical things. It seems that certain Corinthians were being baptized on behalf of, of people, possibly family members or, or friends who, had, who died. So Paul knew about this, and even if he didn't fully approve, uh, his casual tone shows it wasn't a major error. Uh, the best guess, then, is not that they thought baptism played a role in saving the dead, which would be a major error, but that they exaggerated the value of baptism. Um, it seems likely that the Corinthians were concerned about believers who died before they could be baptized and feared some spiritual loss as a result. Uh, this view, it, this view, it suits the context and really coheres with other, uh, uh, with other scriptures, which show Paul as more of a He's a protector of the gospel, right? He's a lion of the gospel. So anything that would have challenged the gospel itself, he would have dealt with head on. So Paul just mentions the fact that it is inconsistent to be baptized for anyone if Jesus did not raise from the dead and our bodies will not raise from the dead. So Paul is showing them, what Paul is really showing them is that it is illogical for them to be baptized for people if the dead are not going to rise. Why would you be baptized for a dead person if there is no resurrection? He is showing them this inconsistency in their practice. So I think he's talking about the practice of some that he, he doesn't endorse, that he doesn't say is good or that, that, that you should do it. Because uh, nowhere in the Bible is baptism for the dead taught. Uh, he's showing them how illogical it is. right? But, but, don't, but I think we shouldn't miss Paul's point. And Paul's point is without the resurrection, baptism is foolish. That's the major point that he's making, right? That without the resurrection, baptism is foolish. Our preaching is foolish. Our faith is foolish. Evangelism is foolish. It's all foolish without the resurrection. We're saved and we are baptized because we hope that we will be raised again one day. The act of proclaiming one's union with Christ or baptism is done in response to saving faith. 
The believer who puts his trust in Christ goes through immersion as a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. This is so synonymous with Christianity that baptism actually became a, a synonym for salvation. In the Great Commission, uh, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, our Lord says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism was so inseparable from saving faith that it is spoken of in its, in its place. And without the resurrection, we have no hope in baptism, right? We have no hope in rising again. There are plenty of people who came to faith in Christ by reading something written by someone who's dead, by recalling a testimony uh, given by someone who is now dead, maybe a parent or um, a friend, or even by the influence of the testimony of someone dying, right? And, but who, who may be now dead. Some people are being saved and baptized, entering the family of God because of the influence of believers who are dead. That could mean a, a few things. That could mean, one, uh, because of the testimony of believers who've gone before, the testimony of believers that we know who face death, and, and secondly, uh, because of the promise of reunion, right? Because they could be getting baptized because of this promise of being reunited with them. The hope of the resurrection and the resurrection that follows the resurrection. The hope of the, the re resurrection and reunion that follows the resurrection is a hope of salvation. Some are baptized because of the hope of the reunion with those people who are dead. Faith of the ancients, right? Let's look at the faith of the ancients. In Hebrews 11, it gives a list of a whole lot of, of, of ancients who died in Christ, right? It, it gives us a list. The chapter talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Gideon and Samson, and the list goes on and on. But these are all people who by faith conquered kingdoms, was righteous, and obtained promises of God. These people are all dead. They all lived a life of faith looking for a purpose in resurrection. They were stoned and tempted and some put to death by the sword. Why did they do this? Right? Why did they do this? Some all the way into death. It's because they knew there was a better resurrection. They are the dead who give us a picture of life, of faith. We look at Hebrews 12 and 2. I believe. It says, Hebrews 12 and 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. How Jesus faced death is how we should face death, right? Looking for a better life, an afterlife, a resurrected life. If the dead don't rise, then what's the point of all of these testimonies? Then what is the point of the reunion promises? Reunion, right, is a strong, strong hope for salvation. And the resurrection is our hope of this salvation. So we can look even at the Old Testament and David, right? So if we got put up on the screen, David, 2 Samuel 12, 22-23. And just, just a little context, it says, this is about what David's sin of adultery, right? David's sin of adultery and murder had just been exposed by the prophet Nathan. The Lord told David, because of his sin, the child that was conceived with Bathsheba will die. The child then became gravely ill. And, and while the child was ill, David couldn't eat or sleep, uh, sleep in his bed. Um, he just laid on the ground the entire time. After about seven days, after seven days, the child died and the servants were afraid to tell David because of how he was acting when the child was, was ill, uh, but still alive. They thought that if they told him that the child had died, 
he may harm himself. So David, he heard them whispering about it, and he knew that the child had died. So he asked them, and they told him, yes, you know, yes, the child died. David then got up, washed himself, changed his clothes, went to the worship of the Lord in the Lord's house, and then he went home and ate. The servants, they were just confused and, and, and perplexed, and they asked him, like, okay, like, why? Why is this? Why did you go and do this? And then this is David's response starting at 22. He said, he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Right. So it's this hope of this reunion with the child. Right. David had a hope in the resurrection. Paul says in his writings to the Thessalonians, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation, uh, exaltation. It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. You are our glory and joy. Right. We are all going to meet together again. This is the reunion. This is in, through the resurrection. Resurrection and life after death have always been the hope for people giving purpose to come to Christ. How many have come to Christ by watching someone die and seeing their faith in the face of death? So there is life after death. There is hope for reunion. So all must receive salvation and baptism. The resurrection gives us hope for salvation. The resurrection also gives us power. 1 Corinthians 15, 30-32 says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts of Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, there's no purpose for service. There is no motive for a believer's sacrificial work to the Lord. And Paul, he served in the boldest way. He identified himself as a soldier, as a warrior, as a, a boxer, as a wrestler, as a runner. And, and Paul and the other apostles basically lived their entire lives in danger. In 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and 31, it says, I face death every day. Paul is telling that because of his faith. He suffers and his life is in danger every day. In Acts 19, uh, starting about the 23rd verse, Paul was in Ephesus uh, because of Paul's teaching. A considerable number of people turned from idols. Demetrius, the silversmith, he lost his business and gathered some other craftsmen or, and, and some other craftsmen. They were all full of rage, right? There's one thing that makes the people upset is mess with their economy, right? Mess with their money. They don't have anything to say to you until you do that. So that, that kind of drove them drove them mad. They began crying out saying, great is Artemis of, of, of the Ephesians. The city was in confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater where Paul was and dragged Paul along with Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus Paul's traveling, his, 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 his traveling companions, his boys, uh, coming from, from Macedonia. One of the amazing statements Paul makes is that every day he faces death. And, and Paul was not talking about I face death as in like a, a spiritual death or I face death at, because I have to deny myself some pleasures here or there. Paul faced actual, actual death. He's talking about physical death, physical danger of being martyred and being put to death. 
in those days, if you were a Christian, it could mean your life, right? If you get baptized, that could mean your life. And in parts of the world today, if you become a Christian and you are baptized, that could mean your life. You could be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ. Why do that if there is no resurrection of the dead, right? Why even do that? Then Paul asks this question. He says, if, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it, it, is it to me? The dead, if the dead do not rise. You see the, the logic Paul is giving us. He is asking that if there is no God, if there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection, no eternal life, then why should I even live for the Lord, right? Why should I even live for the Lord? Why should you deal with opposition? He calls it, it, it fighting with beasts at Ephesus, right? This, this fighting with beasts at Ephesus was Paul fighting lions. Well, there is no reference in the book of Acts of Paul being thrown to the beast. So in the Roman Empire, probably are familiar, uh, at times they would take people in, into the arenas and pretty much throw them to, to wild animals, right? To lions, right? And if you were a Roman citizen, more than likely, you would not face a death like that. So part of it is that, that Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, he wouldn't be thrown in the arena. So it's possible he's, speak, he's speaking metaphorically and he's referring back to when he was at that time uh, being opposed by the silversmith during that riot. So when, when he was in Ephesus uh, and when he was preaching, Paul was, was, was taken and he was beaten and he faced a lot of opposition. So Paul was saying uh, he fought with these beasts or these evil men who opposed him. So Paul suffered and he went through great difficulties. Uh, he, he went through more than what we would call hardships. But the point is the question at the end of verse 32, where he says, what advantage is it to, to Paul if the dead do not rise? And if that is true, this is how we should live, right? Let us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. This is what is known as hedonism, right? So what Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after death, we should just enjoy life as it is now, right? Hedonism. It's the theory or belief that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim for human life. If God isn't real and Jesus didn't die for our sins and there is no hope beyond the grave, if Christianity isn't true, you might as well go get drunk, live it up. A few years ago, everybody was saying YOLO. Probably a little bit more than a few years ago, right? You only live once. Time moves fast. That, that, that's what Paul is saying in this verse, right? That, that's what this verse is saying. And, and, and don't take it out of context because Paul isn't saying go live it up, but he's saying if the resurrection didn't happen, that's what you might as well do. That's what Paul said. Let's enjoy life. Let's eat and drink. So if the resurrection isn't happening, then we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I, I wonder, you know, as, as you look at the culture around us, why people are so into food and, and drink and clothes. Um, it, it's because it's all they have, right? It's all they have. They don't have hope beyond the grave. It always has to be a, a, a new party. It's always got to be the, the next invention in, in automobiles, a, a bigger house, um, all these things that they get to just fill their lives because here is all that they have. But we as Christians, uh, we have hope, right? This life is just a robing room for eternity. We're just being prepped for eternal life. This is just a speck compared to the everlasting joy that we'll have with the Lord. 
Jesus told this parable of a foolish farmer who had a, a great crop, right? He didn't know what to do with the, all the produce that his crop produced. So he said, well, what I'll do is I'll just build bigger barns, right? I don't have enough room to store the things that I have. So I'll build bigger barns, he said. He said, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. When he realized that he should just enjoy life, this is what the, the um, it's also re is reflected in Ecclesiastics, right? In life, in a life without God, you might as well enjoy yourself. Just live the pleasures. But notice what Paul says. It's not in our passage here, but what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, which is, and this is the conclusion of this whole chapter, right? And what Paul says, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a, a worldly standpoint, right, of, of, of I need to do all that I can here and, and attain all that I can in the comforts of life. And as a contrast, I kind of looked at at, at um, uh, Steve Jobs. Right. I don't know if anybody's ever saw his like last words thing. I'm not exactly sure if it's if it's true, if it's accurate. But but what is being reflected, I think, is the. It's what's reflected by a lot of people that's in his situation, right? I think that that's what it is. And it says that, it says here, it says that I reached the pinnacle. This is supposedly a, a quote from Steve Jobs. Uh, he says, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is, is the epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on my bed and recalling my life, I realized that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of my death, right? That is, is, is the, 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 the thought of most people in the world. They chase and chase and chase and acquire only to find out it is worthless. Now, we're going to contrast that to John G. Patton. John G. Patton was a, a, a evangelist who, with his wife, um, they went out and they shared the gospel with uh, islanders, with uh, some people on an island that were considered, that were cannibals, right? That were cannibals. It says, John G. Patton and his wife set sail uh, to the islands in 1858, but this decision didn't come without criticism, right? On one account, before leaving, a respected elder chided the couple. It says that, that you will be eaten by cannibals, to which, which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms, right? <laughs> The resurrection gives us power to do things like that. If you believe, when you believe rightly in the resurrection, then you have the power to go to dangerous places to share the gospel. You have the power to use the things that you have here on this world, earth to share the gospel. Patton, he didn't play. He was a courageous man who understood how to do missions when dying is gain. Right? God is sovereign, and Patton knew it. He endured one threat after another and put it all on the line for the glory of Christ. So do you believe what Paul says, right? If you believe that, then how do you live? Do you truly believe that there is a hope beyond the grave? 
Do you believe that this life is but a vapor of smoke compared to eternal life? Do you believe in eternal rewards? The you should be influenced by what you believe and look to the resurrection for power to serve others because your service is not in vain. Unlike the worldly view, who spends their entire life building an empire, experiencing any pleasure known to man, all to find it was meaningless in the end, we can do seemingly, unlike them, right? We as Christians can do seemingly mundane things with full confidence that it is not in vain, right? Whether it's putting up an easy up or setting up coffee and set up and tear down or serving in, in kids or holding babies and things of that sort, you know, or, 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 or traveling to a cannibalistic island, right? To share the gospel of Jesus. It's not done in vain and the resurrection gives us power to do it. Someone said the resurrection makes strong, brave, and hopeful Christians. And the Bible teaches that we will be resurrected. We will stand before Christ and we will be rewarded for our service. So we should be steadfast immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The resurrection is our power. The resurrection is our motivation. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Don't let others mislead or deceive you. This is a very common warning in the New Testament. It could be read, you know, stop being deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Its basic meaning is association and, and communion. So, so you, you must know this, right? We all kind of know that bad associations, bad friends, exposure to seductive content, exposure to bad teaching and, and bad theology, it corrupts good character. So what kind of associations are, are we talking about? I think the answer really comes in we look, if we look at Psalms uh, 1 verses 1 through 3. Psalms 1, 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not weather, and all that he does, he prospers. In this verse, it says, notice, I would say, notice the progression that's being made, right? It's, it, it goes from walking to standing to sitting in the council of the wicked, right? From walking to standing to sitting in the council of the wicked. It, it actually reminds me of something my, my pastor as a, as a kid used to tell me uh, that I grew up with. He said, you can let a bird, you might let a bird land on your head, but don't let it build a nest, Right. You might let a bird land on your head, but don't let it build a mess. What did he mean by that? He was warning me to stay on guard for philosophies and arguments that presented themselves as wisdom, but were actually wicked. Right. To, to, to not meditate on those things too much. He knew, you know, he knew what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 through 5. It says, 
For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, right? Bad doctrine, bad perceptions, and bad counsel corrupt good morals. The purpose, the hope of the resurrection, the reunion with Christ is a purifying hope. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and 34 says, it said, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, right? For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this, say this to your shame. If, if you're following these people who are completely ignorant of God and you're allowing their bad theology, stop, right? Stop. The wrong doctrine produces evil behavior. If we deny the doctrine of the resurrection in verses 33, 34, no, we, we lose the motivation to live holy. We lose the motivation to live godly lives. Why should we live holy, godly lives? Or, or why should we avoid sin if, if there is no judgment for sin? Paul, Paul says, do not be deceived, right? Evil company, which refers to the false teachers that had corrupted their minds. Teaching that there was no resurrection of the body. It, it corrupts the good morals. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. If we look at these two verses, we see the rejection of a future resurrection of the body had harmed these believers in, in a few ways. In other words, their false belief affected their Christian life in, in these ways. First of all, they were being led astray. Verse 33 says, do not be deceived. In the Greek, it says, stop being deceived. All right? It's in the present tense. So the, the Corinthians were actually under the influence of the false teachers and were being deceived. Also, they forgot that bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. Verse 33 says, bad company ruins good morals. Uh, the evil company spreading the false communications came from, from false teachers. When you, when you listen to false teachers and you submit their, to their instruction, it will have a bad effect on the way that you live. So the false communication refers to the false teachers who corrupted the way the Corinthians lived. Paul was saying that what you believe will determine how you behave. So they were being led astray and they forgot that false teaching led them to this false living. I think, I think people should be careful of what they're consuming, right? Because if you, if you listen to false teaching and false doctrine, if the, the preaching isn't sound and, and biblical, it will negatively affect you. How you live, uh, it'll affect how you think and how you conduct yourself. So, so sound doctrine will lead to sound living. It, that, that's very important. Where are you going when you need advice? Right? When you're challenged or, or turning, or you're challenged and you're thinking about things, are you turning to like pop culture uh, and, and podcasts or authors for this advice? You know, we should make sure that we're looking to what the Lord has to say first. Make sure that we're looking to the right sources because like Paul said, this war, war this is a war of the mind, right? It's a war of the mind. If I, if I can get you to think badly, 
then I can get you to start believing badly, and then I can get you to start behaving badly, right? It's a war of the mind, so cast down imagination, right? We, we should make sure that we're looking to the Lord, to the right sources, um, because the bad thinking leads to bad behavior. Third, they were intoxicated, right, by worldliness. That is what, why Paul said to them in verse 34, awake, from, to your, uh, awake to righteousness, right? The word awake here, it has the idea of sober up, right? Sober, become sober. They were getting drunk and they were intoxicated by the philosophies of the culture, right? The Corinthians, they really valued wisdom. They placed a high, high regard on wisdom. So that's, that's what they were, they were doing. And Paul said in Romans 2 and, and 12 and 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, right? Do not be conformed, do not be molded by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let this world press you into a mold. Too many Christians are thinking like the world sometimes. And because they're thinking like the world, they're behaving like the world. We need to, we need to be careful that bad teaching and bad philosophy is causing us to be intoxicated. So sober up. Don't be influenced by worldliness. Uh, another point is that they were actively sinning, right? They were actively sinning. When Paul says, and do not sin, it means that the Corinthians were actually living in sin. When he said, do not sin, I kind of looked into that a little bit further. And, I, and, and, and what it really means is, do not sin, right? <laughs> That's it. It was, it was no other meaning around it. Paul saying, do not sin, and it means, do not sin, right? It's, 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 that, it's that simple. The Bible, so uh, the Corinthians, they were living in sin, doctrinally, morally, and ethically. They believed in falsehood, so they were living in sin. People often reject doctrinal truth in order to justify their sin, right? Uh, people have argued true, clear, doctrinal, biblical truth to justify doing what they have said in their hearts to do, whether it's right or wrong. This happens all the time, and, and you've probably been in conversations with people that ha have done that. The Bible says that we should maintain our sanctification, and we should live pure lives. But you say, oh, I don't believe that, right? Why, why is that? Because you want to accommodate your sinful behavior, right? Why? I, I don't believe that, that, that that's what the Bible teaches, well, why? Because a lot of times we want to accommodate our sinful behavior. We want to, you want to live in disobedience and you want to do certain things. You want to indulge in a particular pleasure and you don't want to stand true to the teaching of the scriptures. So the Corinthians, they were sinning in this way. Uh, uh, another point is that, that they were unconcerned about the loss, right? They were unconcerned about the loss. Verse 34 Again, Paul says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Why did Paul throw that in? He's telling these Corinthians that they are bad witnesses. We follow the train of thought. Bad thinking leads to bad believing, leads to bad behaving. Well, people are watching this, right? And they are seeing the bad behavior, and that's making them bad witnesses. They were forgetting about the non-Christians, and the non-Christians were looking at the way they were living. There were some who didn't know the Lord. They didn't have the knowledge of God. So, so when you're on the job or, or in your home or, or, or around friends and neighbors, remember that you as a Christian are being watched, 
right? They're watching what you do. Six, and, and the, the last one, is, is they were bringing shame to Christ and his gospel. Verse 34 says, I speak this to your shame. In other words, these things that were affecting the Corinthians negatively because they didn't believe one thing, that their bodies would be resurrected, right? These, all of these things were happening because they didn't believe one thing. The one thing was that your bodies will be resurrected. They didn't believe that. And that implicates or have grave implications in, in many things. Trusting in the fact of Christ's resurrection and looking forward to our own rising from the dead should motivate us towards sanctification, right? When we believe in the resurrection properly, that should motivate us to sanctification. The resurrection is our motivation for sanctification. You see how important this doctrine is? This whole chapter is devoted to this one truth. Your bodies will rise again. And you'll have eternal life and have a new body created in the image of Jesus Christ, who has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the doctrine of the resurrection of the body provides for us these three things. And, and let me encapsulate really these three points. First of all, it's hope for salvation. The resurrection provides hope for salvation. Because Christ rose from the dead, there is salvation. We should preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We should be evangelistic because there is life beyond the grave. Second, power for service, right? The resurrection is our power for service. What else should we do with our lives? Just eat, drink, and be merry? Now, that, that's not to say that Christians should not eat, drink, and have enjoyment in life, right? And find enjoyment in life. But we shouldn't build our homes there, right? We should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? And put things in their proper place. And we'll know that he'll care for us. So our service needs to be to the Lord. If you believe in the resurrection of the body, it should affect how you live. It should affect how you spend your time. It should affect how you use your resources. It should affect everything. Um, and you should have a devoted and eternal, a life that's eternally devoted to God. Thirdly, our motivation, uh, or the resurrection is motivation for sanctification. So it affects our salvation, our service, and our sanctification. Why live a holy life? If there is no life beyond the grave, if there is no hope that we'll see God, if there is no judgment for our sin, then why live a holy life? But there is a resurrection of the body, right? We will see God. We will stand before him and give an account for of our lives. So we want to live a holy and godly lives. Look, so Jesus came to earth to live the life that we couldn't, die the death that we should have, and be risen and rose to life to conquer death, right? And conquer the grave. And, and, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And those who put their trust in him can live confidently, right? Knowing that we too will rise again and really be with him forever. And, and just like the, the runners that came after Bannister, when we believe in what Jesus did for us, we, when we believe in the resurrection, we can live with hope of salvation, we can live with power to serve 
and we can live with the motivation for godly living. Heaven is not to be just a future destination. It is to be our present motivation. Amen? Amen. So keep your eyes fixed on the prize, right? And keep your eyes on eternity. Let's pray.